Now, thinking of the cross, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll take time again to read from the verse 8. I know we've read this passage many times. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 8. But it is good to familiarize ourselves with the Word of God. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him ensue evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure were unto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And my subject today is to consider the greatest sufferer in the world. Now let's remember the context context of any text is always important. Peter is writing to God's people who are suffering physical and verbal persecution at the hands of individuals in the old Roman Empire. Nero, of course, was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians in the history of the church. 
it is known that at least once in Rome he held a party uh, in the grounds of his palace. He needed lights for his garden. His subjects asked him, well, where will we get lights for the garden? And he says, well, don't the Christians profess to be lights of the world? Take the Christians, crucify them, cover them with tower, and they will be our lights. And that's what he did. The Christians were set alight in an appropriate time. And you can just imagine the undescribable suffering of being burnt alive. All because you're a Christian and a follower of Christ. We could ask the question, why are God's people being persecuted in old times? What was their crime? Was it evil? Was it doing wickedness? The answer is no. It was because of their belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was because of their faithfulness to the preaching of the cross of a crucified Christ. Let's remember that the cross work of Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks. And the authorities of that day set about punishing those who stood without apology for the gospel of a crucified Christ. And let me just remind you, their sufferings were real. I have no doubt they were hard and difficult and painful and even problematic to understand why. And here's Peter, and he's writing to these persecuted people. And he, of course, is a pastor. And he has got a a good heart. And he wants to encourage them. He wants them, even despite the ferocity of that persecution, to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. He wants them to stand without apology for the sake of a good conscience, which, of course, enriches good conduct that adorns the gospel of the cross. To really help them and encourage them, He directs their hearts and minds to the cross of Christ. He has just informed them that their trials and difficulties have come in the will of God. Look at chapter 3 verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Their trials and difficulties have come in the will of God. Isn't it so often true that in often times God determines, decrees, trials and hardship and persecution, even death for his people according to his perfect will. God's people are suffering in the will of God. They are suffering for well-doing. Now, now what does that mean? It means that he has ordained and decreed their suffering. It's all in his will and plan. Secondly, He knows all about it. Every detail, every aspect. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't forsaken them. He hasn't failed his people. Aren't we tempted to think in hard times? He doesn't know. He he doesn't care. He has no loving interest in us. But of course it's a lie from the devil. Thirdly, if it's God's will we suffer, eventually good will come from it. Romans 8 and 28. Something to remember in a bad day. Fourthly, if we suffer in God's will, he will send us help and sustaining grace. 
to meet us at the point of our need. Fifthly, if we suffer in God's will, we can rejoice. We can be glad. We can count it pure joy. We can say it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. And lastly, if we suffer in God's will for doing well, we can glorify God in the midst of it. Now that's the thrust of Peter's argument. And having said that, that they were suffering in accordance with the will of God. Now look at verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. What's he doing here? Remember, he's trying to encourage them. And he's saying, here's something to really help you, something to encourage you, something to enable you to stand firm, even when severe persecution has come. And that persecution is bitter and hard and so difficult. And you have to accept that, that, that this is even in the will of God. This is what I want you to do. I want you to consider Christ and the cross. Uh, fix your eyes in him. Take him into your heart and mind. Remember, Christ also suffered for sins. This, I believe, is one of the most outstanding texts in the whole of 1 Peter. A text, I believe, summarizes the whole of Peter's letter. It summarizes all that Peter is saying to these believers. A text, of course, that we want to keep in its context and not divorce it from the rest of the letter. I believe this text is well calculated to encourage God's people and also calculated to enable God's people to live for Christ even in a difficult day. Here's how to be holy. Here's how to sanctify the Lord God in your heart in a day of hurt and a day of pain. Look to Christ on the cross. Look to him crucified. Fill your heart and mind with him. Consider the greatest sufferer in the world. Now I have a number of things I want to just point out very quickly from the text. Very simply, it's on the surface here. Consider the person of Christ. He says... For Christ. And we'll stop there. We'll ask ourselves, who is he referring to? Who is Christ? Now the word Christ means anointed. Christ, of course, is the anointed one of God. Peter introduces us here straight away to the person of the Saviour. I want you to remember that there's a direct and definite connection between who he is and what he's accomplished. Why does the Christian look to the cross of Christ for salvation? What is its intrinsic value and worth? Surely it lies chiefly in the person of Christ. The work of the cross, intrinsic worth, lies chiefly in the worth of Christ. He is God's anointed prophet, God's anointed priest, God's anointed king. And who he is gives prominence and permanence and preeminence to what he has accomplished and what he does for us now. Let's remember he is God incarnate. Let's remember he's the one born of the Virgin Mary. 
According to 1 Corinthians 2 and 8, he's the Lord of glory. Psalm 24, verses 7 and 8, he's the King of glory. Hebrews chapter 1 and 3, he's the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the express image of his person. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet was in the house of God, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died. It was a big loss to the nation when the king died. People were asking, where do we go from here? What do we do now? Uh, what does the future hold for us? Isaiah's in the temple. He's seeking the Lord. Uh, and in the temple, he, he, he gets a vision of the Lord. He, he, he sees the glory of God. He says, mine eyes have seen the king. And if we compare scripture with scripture, which is the right hermeneutical principle in John 12 and 41, the Bible tells us that Isaiah beheld Christ's glory. And the glory of Jehovah is the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, now, now try to grasp what I'm saying. We're here, we want to see Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. But who is he, really? He's the Lord of glory. He's the King of glory. He's the only begotten Son of the Father. He's the Son of God. First Timothy three sixteen we read great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh. John one fourteen we read and the word was made flesh or the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now what I'm saying is this: you cannot divorce the person of Christ from what happened. On the cross at Mount Calvary. Who died is equally important to us as to the way he died and why he died. You see, the preaching of the cross of Christ must include the preaching of the person of Christ. Without this vital element... The preaching of the cross becomes another gospel. It becomes an apostate gospel. You, you see, there are those today who speak of the cross and they claim to be preaching the cross. But the true essential deity of Christ is not set forth. It is never mentioned. Maybe in some cases it's being denied. There's no truth about the mystery of his incarnation that God um, was manifest in the likeness of human flesh. There's, there's no talk of his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning substitutionary death. The, these truths, they're not set forth. And of course, if they're not set forth, it's not the gospel. So when you consider the preaching of the cross, when you consider the cross of Christ, consider the person of Christ. Who is he? For Christ will stop there. He's the anointed one. Anointed by the Father to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. Anointed the mediator of the new covenant. Why? Because he's the Lord of glory. He's the king. He's, he's the express image of the Father's glory. He's God in the flesh. Oh, that we could hold that. Notice secondly, consider the passion of Christ. It says here, for Christ, 
also hath once suffered for sins. Now, in reading 1 Peter, there are seven direct references to the suffering of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 2, 21. Chapter 2, 22. Chapter 3, verse 18. That's the fourth reference. Chapter 4, 1. Chapter 4, 13. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seven references to the suffering of Christ. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection. But think of the fourth reference, the one that we're dealing with. 1 Peter 3, 18. Four in the Bible is the number of completion. And here's a complete testimony here to the person and work of Christ, to, to the cross of Christ, to the preaching of a crucified Christ, the Lord of glory, the anointed one of God, he also hath once suffered for sins. We could think of his physical suffering, if you underline the word suffer. The suffering of Christ, I believe, commenced at his birth. I have no doubt there was a big element of suffering, even in his incarnation, the Lord of glory, taking upon himself the likeness and form of that sinful flesh, laying aside the robes of his uh, celestial glory. Remember, he lived his life as a real man, real flesh and blood body. He suffered hunger, knew what it was to be thirsty, experienced weakness and tiredness. His life was threatened. He, he, he was, had stones fired at him. People wanted to kill him. Uh, he, he was called names, remember Beelzebub? Uh, and um, he, he was hated despised he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and there's no doubt he suffered in his body there was physical suffering and we could see him at Gabatha and Pilate's judgment hall remember how they 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 they, they scourged him uh, we could see him in Gethsemane um, remember he said in the garden my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And his physical suffering uh, give us a little insight to what he was suffering as far as his soul is concerned. He, he did suffer in his soul. We see him being led away from Gethsemane. He was scourged, as I've said. They spat upon him. They slapped his face. They... Uh, pulled the hair from his face. He was just suffering agony upon agony. The climax was they led him to Golgotha and he suffered there again at the hands of men. Men did their worst. They nailed his hands and his feet to the tree. He, he was naked uh, on the tree for at least uh, three hours. And, he, and here's the, the greatness of it all. He, 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 here's the intensity of it all. Christ's sufferings, they were unique, one of a kind. We could say no one ever really suffered like him. Thousands have been crucified. Thousands have been murdered. Um, probably from the time that he was crucified, thousands were murdered before that for testimony to God and thousands since. But none like him. His were unique because he was the perfect, sinless, spotless son of the living God. He's the just one. 
as we'll come to see. Notice something else. He suffered at the hands of men. Wicked men, I believe, did their worst to the physical physicality of Christ. And then, of course, you know what happened. The wrath of a sin-hating God took over. The Bible tells us here, Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Here's the reason for his suffering. Whose sins, we could ask? Well, not his own. He was sinless. Remember the hymn writer, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. God the Father didn't spare his only begotten son. It pleased the Lord, the Bible says, to bruise him and put him to grief. His sufferings were real. They were unique. He suffered at the hands of men. He, he, he suffered the wrath of a sin-hating God. His sufferings, notice, were once and for all. They were indeed final and complete. They didn't have to be repeated. Christ offered a full, final, forever sacrifice on the tree. But this man, Hebrews 10, 12, tells us, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. That's vital to the gospel, folks. Jesus Christ need not to ever die again on a tree. He cried, it is finished, paid in full. Of course, that makes the Roman Catholic Mass so unnecessary. The Mass, of course, is a repetition of Calvary. It's called by Roman Catholic theologians uh, an unbloodied sacrifice. But here we are. And Peter, he tells us, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The sacrifice was made once and for all. There cannot be Endless sufferings. And that makes the Mass not only so unnecessary, that makes the Mass blasphemous. That's why it was repudiated by our reformers. His sufferings were once and for all. Notice his suffering was an account of man's sins. The sins didn't belong to Christ. He died for the sins of others. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. The Bible tells us he did no sin. Christ is the sin bearer, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Christ was appointed by the Father to die. And voluntarily, he, he chose to pay the penalty that our sin owed to the broken law. And he died on account of our sin. Keep in mind that he's described here in this text as the just one. And another thing that we could say as you consider his passion, his death and sufferings were in the will of God. Think of the word also and underline it. Put a ring round it. Think of Christ. He didn't try to avoid the will of God. He didn't try to get out of it. He submitted himself to the will of God. In fact, he said, not my will be done, but thine. He delighted in the will of God. The Bible says, uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't reject it. He didn't refuse it. He didn't renege on the promise. Remember, he has entered into a, 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 a covenant, an eternal covenant with his father. He was to stand as a surety for his people. I will pay the debt that they owe to the broken law, father. 
And there was no going back in his word. He was a man of his word. See the sufferings of Christ. How real and unique they are. And yes, you people, this is what Peter is saying, your suffering is real. But also consider Christ's suffering. He suffered for sins. Notice also here, thirdly, the perfection of Christ. It says, the just for the unjust. The word just here means absolutely sinless and righteous. Christ is a perfect saviour. In Acts chapter 3, whenever Peter is preaching, he, he said to those in Jerusalem, you've denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. He, he recognized Christ as absolutely holy, absolutely sinless, as the spotless Son of God. Over there in Psalm 34 and verse 19, the Bible says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. And I thought to myself many times that the word righteous, I think of a group of people, I think of God's people. And the other day when I was meditating on that, I was thinking, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is that not primarily a reference to Christ? It's not a group of people. It's God's Son. And many afflictions he had because of who he is, of his own perfections. I don't believe Peter was exaggerating. I don't believe he was pretending. I believe he was being exact. The just. One who is absolutely perfect. We have got a perfect saviour. Ecclesiastes 7 and 20 tells us that there's not a just man on earth that liveth and doeth good and sinneth not. The, the, the truth is that we're all sinners in thought and word and deed. But Christ alone is different. He is perfectly holy, unchangeably holy, eternally perfect and just. He never sinned, completely free from sin. Sin is in regard to the law. Um, he was free from every sinful thought, every sinful word. Never man spake like this man. Free from every sinful deed. He went about doing good. Free from every tendency to sin whether in public or private. See, I believe that Christ was able not to sin. But I also believe that Christ was not able to sin because of who he is, the Lord of glory. Christ is marked by perfection. He is altogether lovely. He perfectly loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He perfectly loved his neighbor. He was faithful in all the works that God the Father given him to do. And surely when we think of him on the cross, not only think of his person, here's the Lord of glory. Not only think of his passion, he also suffered for sins. But think of his perfection. We've got an illustrious and a perfect Savior this morning. Notice something else very quickly. Consider the propitiation of Christ. The just for the unjust. 
See, when Christ died, he accomplished and completed all the work that God the Father had given him to do. Isn't this what John speaks of in 1 John chapter 4? He says, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, now look to the cross. That's what Peter is saying. Look to the person there. Look to him paying a price for our sins. Look to him doing a work that he fulfilled and completed. And notice what emerges. The just for the unjust. There's a principle. There is the truth of a vicarious atonement. The truth of substitution. You see, the doctrine of atonement, I believe, depends on the doctrine of substitution. It cannot be divorced. Many, sadly, today have loose views of the cross. The substitutionary atonement, the vicarious atonement of Christ is missing. Jesus Christ, I believe, died in the place of all the people given to him by his heavenly Father in the council and covenant of redemption. Jesus Christ, I believe, died bearing the sins of all his people who would trust him as Lord and Saviour. The innocent one for guilty ones. The just one, the one who was absolutely perfect for all the sinful ones. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For he, that is God, hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there's a double imputation there. He has made a sin bearer, a sin offering, a sacrifice for us. And we in him who are filthy and unclean, we're made the righteousness of God. Oh, when we stand at the cross, not only think of the person, look at Christ. Not, not only think of his passion, his physical suffering, the sufferings in his soul, suffering the wrath of God. Not only think of his perfection, but think today, I've got a substitute in Christ. I've got a surety, one who stood in place of me, a guilty sinner, one who paid my debt that I couldn't pay, a sin bearer, a sin offering. A sacrifice. You see, there's not one sin unatoned for in the death of Christ. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We have got a sufficient Savior this morning. Notice two other things and we're finished. Consider the purpose of Christ. Look at our text again, that he might bring us to God. There's a twofold purpose. There's reconciliation and there's glorification. And it's a definite purpose. Some think and preach, well, there was no real purpose or intent in Christ's mind as he died in Calvary. He wasn't dying to accomplish anything. He was just dying. That's rubbish. That's lies. That's spawned from the devil. 
Here's the text inspired of the Holy Ghost. This is what Peter wrote to encourage the people that he might bring us to God. Christ is our covenant head, discharged every covenant obligation on our behalf. What did he fail to do? The answer is nothing. Could he ever say, I tried and failed? The answer is no. What did you do? I died to bring you to God. To bring us into a right relationship with God. To reconcile us to God. Be ye reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? Through Christ. And not only to bring us into a right relationship with God, but, but ultimately to bring us home to glory. Bring us into the very presence of God so we would see the Lord. Isn't that an amazing statement? Doesn't it apply by nature that we're very far from God? Aren't we far off from God because of sin in our hearts and minds? Aren't we all born in a state of estrangement? It also implies that we can't bring ourselves to God. We're at war with God. We're God's enemies. We're ungodly. And we can't reconcile ourselves. We can't glorify ourselves. We can't pull ourselves into God by good works, even good religious works. The destiny is not in our hands. Think for a moment of the lost sheep. It couldn't find its own way to the shepherd. Why? Because it was lost. This word, bring us to God, implies the work has been done for us. It's all about what Christ has done. Christ alone brings us to God. Do you know, folks, that's the greatest possible blessing. That's the most wonderful and blessed relationship you could be in to know that you've been reconciled to God, that you're in a right relationship, a a personal relationship, one that's powerful. You can say in truth, the Lord is my shepherd, my saviour, my strength, so many other things, even my song. You know, it's priceless. If, If only the billionaires of the world knew how priceless and a beautiful thing it was. To be in a right relationship with the God of heaven. I'm convinced they would give their riches. To have such a possession. Of course it's without money and without price. Consider the purpose. Bring us to God. And lastly. And our time is gone. Consider the power of Christ. Being put to death in the flesh. But quickened by the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh. You see, the death of Christ gives us life and hope. And here's the proof. He was quickened by the Spirit. That has to do with the resurrection. Now, 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 do you see the power here? There's power in the death of Christ. And there's power in his resurrection. The Bible says he was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. Do you know what I think of the cross of Christ? I don't see defeat. I I don't see failure. I I certainly don't see martyrdom. I, I don't see this stoic mindset where you just endure suffering for the sake of it. I see the power of God at work. And Peter wanted these people to come and stand at the cross. And look at the person of Christ. 
and fill their mind with his passion. Why is he there? Our sins. He was suffering. It was propitiatory. And it was purposeful to bring us to God. And this is powerful. Because he was put to death in the flesh. But glory to God, he was quickened, made alive by the Spirit. You can look to the cross for your salvation. Salvation's of the Lord, but it's found at the feet of Jesus. It's found in a crucified Christ. You can look to the cross for your sanctification. Because we're made holy in Christ, only in Christ. You can look to God for, or you can look to Christ for suffering. There's your example. There's your encouragement. And there's a way in which you can engage and cope with all that you're facing. Because the cross of Christ is the strongest argument for sanctifying the Lord God and standing without apology. For the cross of Christ and having a good conscience, it's all tied in to coming and considering the cross of Christ. Consider the greatest sufferer in the world. Are you identified with Christ? Do you know him? Is he truly your Lord and Savior? Are you looking to the cross for salvation, for everything else that you need in this world? May the Lord take these few remarks and bless them to your heart.